out of all of the episodes that I'm hoping with this new podcast uh, that I can do, uh, this one has to be the most important to me personally. Um, it may to some uh, seem like uh, a couple of old guys sitting around having a beer on the front porch, uh, just rambling on, and and you may find yourself drifting uh, as we drift in, in the conversation to come. Uh, but Steve, my uncle Steve's, most call him Leo, family members, uh, friends, and, and the neighborhood he lives in in Minneapolis, Minnesota, I know him as Leo. But Steve has one of the best memories uh, that I know of. His encyclo almost encyclopedic, dare I say, knowledge of not only the music scene that he discovered in Minneapolis, and, but in Jamestown, North Dakota, as he was growing up and, and picking up the guitar and, and, and his observations and his way of remembering names has always blown my mind. His stories are vast. And every time I sit down with him or in a group or by alone, mano a mano, uh, I always hear a new story. And uh, again, uh, as you know from the intro to my podcast, uh, episode one, um, you'll know that he gave me my first guitar and he began my journey. Uh, so when I sat down and made a list of who I'd like to speak with, and he was the number one invite in that list. And uh, without further ado, um, please uh, glean what you can from this conversation and, uh, and have fun uh, because Steve's a, a wealth of knowledge and I was happy to have him on the show and uh, enjoy. So, Steve, thanks for joining me, man. Thanks for joining me in the garage. I appreciate it. And yeah. When it, when it comes to my story uh, about the guitar and my relationship with the guitar and, and music related to guitar, it all starts with uh, being handed my first guitar. And that was you in Jamestown, North Dakota, 1977. And uh, I kind of told the story in the intro to the podcast. So you, as a guitar player, uh, and, and I, I'd like to know, and I've never asked you this before, and I've never heard your story. How did you get turned on to the guitar? Uh, was it a song? Was it a group? Was it watching someone playing? Uh, you know, what, what, what was your start of your journey? Boy, uh, you know, I was thinking about that in the last hour, and it's a really pretty, really pretty rich uh, road. Um, and to clarify to the audience, whoever is listening, I'm not really a professional guitar player. I'm a home noodler. But I've been a home noodler for 60-plus years probably. Uh, you know, for a couple of decades playing A E D A, you know that yeah. kind of stuff. Yeah. Strumming whenever I was living with somebody that had a guitar. I, <laughs> I gave my first one away. 
say though, being, being a noodler, there was a moment when he came and visited us in Anchorage, and I still had my first guitar, first electric guitar that I bought out of the Sears catalog, and I was living with Jay and Jeff in, in my dad's condo. And he used Jay had a guitar, Jeff had a guitar, and we used to just sit around and noodle, you know, trying to pick stuff up, not knowing how to read music. And you sat down with one of our guitars and played something, and I got so freaking amazed. I'm like, okay, I know Steve's a noodler, I know he's not a professional, but god damn it, what was he just doing right there? Yeah, you know, I remember that time too. And I it was um what was the song? Uh, one of the one of the tunes that has noodling on it, it's the one you're thinking of. Um, dire Straits. What was their, their hit back in the 80s? Sultan's a Swing? Yeah, that was it. I, I think I think Jay probably said, you know, it's playing, it's starting up. Oh, yeah, hey, here's one for you, Dad, Eddie, you know, like, and uh, somebody, shh, you can't play that loud here. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, so the journey uh you know back when i was in grade school so back in 19 like uh fourth fifth and sixth grade i walked to a lincoln school from home and of course my friend john l uh whom i'll probably refer to a lot lived down the street a couple doors down and by 1960 or 61 he got his first guitar and amp and learned how to play guitar in earnest also, living behind us, we are on 2nd Avenue, so on 3rd Avenue, and for a while, John L. went to a different school. This is in James? Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah, grade school kid. And I went to all, my whole grade school and high school in Jamestown. Uh, Jerry Robco uh, had his hair greased back, had pointy shoes and uh, all that, and He'd talk about the songs that he just learned. I don't know if he's learning from his uncle or something, but uh, John Mill would go to another school. So I'd walk, I'd walk up to Third Avenue and run, run into Jerry Rocco, and he'd uh, walk down the street and say, "Wow, I learned Bulldog today." It's like, "Oh, it was Bulldog." <laughs> you know, he was a Carl Perkins kind of guy, and he was my age, so we were like ten or eleven, and. John L. had just picked up a guitar about then. He was probably 11. And so 61. And um, I know John L. took lessons from Jerry, as Jerry took lessons from somebody else. Uh, and they had a band in junior high, and we were too young when they'd play out. Uh, my parents wouldn't let me go see them. Huh. Because, you know, it's like, who's that crowd that's going out to these yeah. small towns out in North Dakota yeah. and playing rock and roll? Who knows? Probably rock and roll music. Yeah, right. uh, even though I've got a picture, I don't know if you've seen this picture of my dad, your grandfather, uh, playing guitar, no, playing accordion, and his brother Clay playing the guitar. Clay played guitar, okay. Yeah, yeah. I realized later that when I had visit my grandparents, uh, I'd walk around their big house out up in, up by the Canadian border, and in the closet, there was a an acoustic guitar there, and I go there and I'd strum it, and I would just reverberate through the house. And I go, aye, aye, aye. so listening to Jerry Rotko talk about guitar playing, and I had, I was pretty clueless. And then John L playing guitar, and then he'd show me what he'd learned. Back in those days, John L had Chet Atkins records oh, and uh, other stuff. And I remember one time on our way to school, he said, "There's this band from England that's uh, uh, 
kind of breaking out. And I think maybe they're coming here. So this one would have been 63. So we'd have been 12 then. Wow. 63, November 63, maybe 13. Uh, the Beatles. Oh, wow, the Beatles. And then a couple of weeks later. Uh, so actually, that would have been 64. Well, winter 64, fall 63. Um, and, uh, and in the meantime, so Beatles came. But already, let's see, John L. was bringing his guitar. I'd go over to his place and he'd play stuff. Okay. One of my big regrets in life, I think, if I have any, was it's like being exposed to John L. daily while he played. What the hell was I thinking? Why didn't I go buy a guitar? Mm -hmm. uh, in retrospect, I, you know, I just thought, well, guitars were magicians, not musicians, magicians. They do magic stuff. And I, I have no idea what that is. So why should I do that? Right? Why would I do that? Yeah. <laughs> can I do that? Yeah can, yeah, can I? I didn't even think. It was more like I couldn't do that. Oh, wow. Because wow. <laughs> John O was good right out of the gate. Wow. Uh, he was, you know, emulating Chet Atkins and other players that I hadn't heard of and James Brown wow. uh, doing R&B stuff when he's 12 and 13. Did Sometimes he have, plug it. Huh? Did he have, sorry, did he have a musical background that influenced him to pick up the guitar? Or no, as far as, as far as I know, he had no musical background. Wow. Um, the drive and desire. I guess, you know, there was a spark in there. I think maybe his dad showed him a guitar. He, I think he told me the story that he was in a, they were in a Sears stores or something, or a Sears store, or a Montgomery Ward. And he saw this guitar a couple of times. And either he asked his dad for it, or his dad said, just picked it up for him. Wow. And there, it was a kind of guitar, probably pretty much like the one I gave you. Uh, are pretty big, clunky, uh, thick stringed, uh, you know, acoustic. Box. <laughs> yeah. Uh -huh. uh, so, so John L was acoustic playing in front of you and not yet electrified. I think I might have missed out on those acoustic years. I think when I first started noticing, or the early, earliest memory I have, he, he, was, he had uh, an electric guitar, I forget what his first one was. And a Fender amp, wow. and uh, and he was he was uh, playing some tunes. Now around that time, this is before the Beatles, or about the time the Beatles came out, uh, I was listening to the Ventures and the Beach Boys. Nice. And uh, it's like I've always had a thing for that uh, surf twang, uh, major chord, <laughs> stuff, big reverb, yeah, and. And that to to this day, uh, I that resonates for me. And John L could play all that stuff. I, he he knew all the Ventures albums. He knew some country western music. He knew you know pretty much everything. He'd haul his amp down to our house, my parents' house, and set up and uh, to show him what, you know what he could do. And I'm sure my dad was impressed because he knew about music. And mom was a piano player, so she was probably impressed. But then it's more like, <clears throat> okay, now you can, you know, you can go, you can run along. <laughs> mom used to say years later, you know, he'd bring his guitar over and he'd play us some songs, and then he just wouldn't leave. <laughs> he kept 
insane. A rap, rapped audience. Yeah. <laughs> all that they're going, I've got dishes to do. All the kids got to get to bed. Oh, you know, like, what do you, you know, maybe it's time to go now. And of course, you're still sitting there watching the whole time. Yeah. Wow, you can play that song too. I heard that on the radio. He was probably learning all the Buddy Holly songs and all that. By the way, actually, this is a reminder of my listening to music. Well, you know, which is probably why I thought I'll never do that. I, I wasn't thinking that I should, well, John L. has a guitar. I should get one too. And I've told this story a couple times lately. I'm not sure why, but maybe I've told you. Uh, I was at the skating rink. Um, so this might have even predated John L.'s guitar. Uh, I was at the skating rink one February day, skating around and freezing, and then going to the warming house and then skate some more. And then Dakota. Yeah, walked across the park and go home, turned on the radio because I was listening to songs. I mean, I really loved whatever pre-Beatle rock and roll songs that they play at our on our station or uh, Herb Alpert or whatever. Well, it was pre-Shangri-Las, it was pre-Ventures. <laughs> it was pre-all that. Um, and I heard that Buddy Holly's plane crashed. And it's like, wow. I mean, so they're playing Buddy Holly songs. So, because I knew those songs, several. And, and that had such an impact. That's been a story that stayed with me my whole life. Uh, you know, I mean, I kind of remember Stevie Ray Vaughan's helicopter went down in Alpine Valley, you know, in the 90s. Yeah. But uh, I probably heard that a couple of days later. But that had an impact. Of course, he was in Clear Lake, Iowa, on his way to Fargo. Yeah. And... So there's that closeness of, uh, you know, that proximity. But I was already a Buddy Holly fan. Yeah. But it's interesting you mentioned that, Steve, because I uh, I had a ticket to go see Steve Ray Vaughan in Texas before he died. Wow. And suddenly I had to, and back in that day, you could log into the internet and get a refund. So I had to call on the phone, have you know, send the refund in the mail. But uh, yeah, that was, you know, it's kind of one of those when Kennedy was assassinated or Martin Luther King or 9-11. It's one of those, and I've always kind of felt this way about guitar players. Uh, you remember where you were, you know. I remember last year hearing about Jeff Beck passing. And my whole bit, my geez, I think my whole week was just kind of a malaise after that. Because we grow this attachment with those creations or their personal, their their personas coming out in their songs, and you feel like we can, you know, we're friends with them. It's a yeah. personal loss, you know. See, that was another one too. Thinking of loss and missing uh, opportunities, uh, I'd have had to sneak as some some of my friends did. Uh, I was in high school, so sixty six, probably sixty six. I was probably a junior in high school or sophomore, and. Um, you know, where Jamestown is, you know, where Fargo is, and Detroit Lakes is a little further down. Back in those days, they still had pavilions where big bands used to play. Okay. You know, Count Basie, Ella Fitzgerald, you know, all all the big bands across the country playing in these pavilions based around the lake. Well, there's Detroit, the Detroit Lakes Pavilion, and the Yardbirds played. Uh, yeah. uh, and, uh, you know, I knew people that were hopping in their cars and, you know, cutting school in the afternoon and heading to Detroit Lakes. Wow. Uh, 
Which, uh, which uh, iteration was it? It was Jeff Beck, I believe, right? You know, I don't know. Uh, if the year was 66 or the year was 67, it wouldn't matter. And I, I never found out which. And I think it was because I think Clapton uh, missed it. He dropped out of them uh, to hit the U.S. And they were getting really poppy, less bluesy for Clapton's taste. And then that's when he shot off and, uh, and went and joined uh, John Mayall, John Mayall's band. Man, and they produced some great stuff. I had one John Mayall record in high school. Yeah. And uh, that was really good. And now I hear them, and I've got a couple in, my, in what I stream. And it's like, it goes back, and I think, wow, let's see, who's that? Is that, uh, is that early um, Fleetwood Mac or something with Peter Green? Uh, Peter Green. And it's like, no, hell, that's uh, John Mayall, and that's Eric Clapton. Wow. Yeah. Those were his best days. Blues, really, that was just like the, the epitome of the blues. When I, when I first discovered it, I was looking at the cover going, that's not the Eric Clapton I know. And he's sitting there reading the Beano magazine. And, uh, okay, well, let's give it a shot. Oh, okay. Because, you know, the Clapton I first discovered was Cream. Well, you know, right. and Layla and, you know, way later Clapton. But this was early raw more blues-oriented clap that I was like, holy crap, yeah. And have you ever heard the early uh, Fleetwood Mac albums? Uh, Peter yeah. Green and uh, like before Then Play On? Yeah. Just solid blues. Absolutely. Uh, Amazing guitar player. Yeah, really was. One of my favorites, I guess, Peter Green and Eric Clapton and all the rest. <laughs> when did you make that leap? When, how did it, was it out of a catalog at a store? Did someone gift it to you or? Oh, you know, I, I don't know if it was this way in small towns across the country in the mid-60s, but we had unbelievable bands playing at the Armory, you know, walking home, walking distance from home. Uh, you know, Flash Tuesday, uh, the Unbelievable Uglies, uh, local talent, local bands. Oh, there's, there's two things. Uh, the Walkers, great band. You know, they played all the hit songs. They played them perfect. Lanny Myrie learned how to play guitar in reform school. I mean, that's a classic story. Cool. His keyboard player, Donnie Maury's mother owned Marguerite's Music in Jamestown. They were the biggest retailer of rock and roll equipment in the Midwest wow. in the 60s. Wow. Their, their closest competition was B Sharp in Minneapolis. Whoa. 360 miles away. Uh, they built a rock and roll empire, and everybody came there. John L. taught guitar lessons there. Oh, wow. That's where you'd go buy. That's the record store. That's where you go thumb through all the records. Nice. Uh, that's where local guitar musicians would come down and be playing in the basement. And that's where I saw my first uh, Gibson bass hanging on the wall for a long time. <laughs> the SG. Yeah. That's when I started to think. You know, if I got that bass, I could play bass in one of John L's bands. <laughs> so I talked my parents into loaning me some money. I bought it. It's two hundred bucks. You bought that bass? Yeah. Oh man, yeah, that was that was my first one. Uh, red, you know, dark neck bass. Yeah, it was wonderful. It was a great bass. That nice kind of uh, mahogany kind of red. Yeah. Yeah. No, oh, bright, bright red. Let's see, what'd you call it? I'd call it uh, yeah. burgundy, candy apple burgundy. Oh, okay. It's candy apple. Okay. 
It was nice. Anyway. Well, I have to ask, and you didn't know how to play guitar, right? Isn't it funny how you think bass could be the gateway? Like, well, it's it's a simpler instrument. I think I can do. There's four strings, not six. You play a note at a time. Not more than back then, no more than four or five notes per song. Right. But so, and I hadn't had any guitar lessons. I told my parents, if you help me buy that bass, I'll take lessons. And I never did. And I'll pay you back. And I did. But then, uh, let's see, turning points there were, uh, well, let's see, um, all the stuff I learned, John L. showed me how to do, and so so we could play together. And then in, when I was a senior in high school, so this is the spring of 68, winter of 67, we got together with some musicians. There were, let's see, not only were there the Walkers from Jamestown and the Unbelievable Uglies from Park Rapids, Minnesota, I think. And they're still around. They're still playing. Wow. Uh, and, you know, they're 80. <laughs> um, uh, there was the Gremlins. Uh, and that was a band with uh, Tim Ingstead, Doug Kruger. Doug Kruger was a folk singer and the singer of the Gremlins. Um these, I can't remember all. Rich Dwyer was in it for a while. Steve Runquist was in it for a while. Uh, after some people moved on and went to college, John L. became the guitar player, and he was the best guitar player they ever had. Although the, you know the other one was good too. Bob Ringstrom on drums. I'm still friends with Bob Ringstrom. Uh, he lives up by St. Cloud. Uh, you still in the Gremlins? No, they uh, they broke up in probably '69. <laughs> When you say they're still playing as individuals, they're still playing there. Oh, yeah, some yeah, some are. Oh, Bob Ringstrom has a whole big set. You know, sometimes uh, he'll call. We've talked a couple times FaceTime, and he'll show me his basement. He's got a, his old drum set and a bunch of stand-up congas and, uh, you know, all kinds of other percussion instruments. So he's still doing it. So you and John L., you got your bass. You're sitting down with him. He's showing you the ropes. Did it ever come to live performances or? We won. No, we took it. We took second place in a uh, talent contest. What did you play? Huh? What did you play? Um, let's see. We had uh, Mike, Mike on saxophone. I'll think of his name, last name later. Uh, saxophone, Bob Ringstrom on drums, John Allen guitar. I played bass. We did a medley. Um a uh, Paul Butterfield blues with the Blues Project, two of their songs, uh, and uh, it was kick-ass. I mean, that was like John L's first big outing, public outing, okay, in town, and uh, people were blown away. I mean, he was awesome. Who got first place? Uh, J.B., Frank McLean, McLean family. He had the, jeez, uh, what was their name? They had a polka band, the Polka Dots. Oh, cool. Okay. They were good. Uh, playing a polka tune. Yeah. Yeah. Play, yeah. <laughs> a, a lot of polka tunes. <laughs> I, I thought we had it singed, but no, the Polka Dots beat us. <laughs> That's okay. I mean, it was North Dakota in 68. What do you expect? <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. So 68, I mean, 
you're getting pretty close to when you went to Woodstock, right? Yeah, a year, that's a year down the road. No idea what was coming. You know, those years from 68, 67, 68 uh, to 75, you know, encap encapsulates uh, the entirety of my uh, identity or my life or, you know, like becoming me. Yeah. <laughs> and it, everything happened. So, like, when I think back now on, this happened in 68, this happened in 69, this happened later in 69, this happened in early 70, this happened in mid-70, this happened in late 70. It's like, how did I cram all that stuff in there? But anyway, well, that, that's, that's another digression. Wow. Uh, regarding music, getting back to music, the, the um, environment around Jamestown in those days, and maybe it was the same in every little town, I don't know. Uh, being being where Marguerite's music was helped. Having all the local bands helped. Uh, after John L., there was a raft of fabulous musicians coming up through the ranks because the whole world was changing. Everybody was learning they could be a musician. Everybody was learning you could you could start a band. Everybody was touring. Everybody was playing. Uh, there there's a uh, a guy, Don Salting, he's a um, uh, linguist, a PhD linguist, I think, in Indiana or Illinois. Fabulous uh, guitar player. Uh, I mean, there are more there are more guitar players and musicians, keyboard players, horn players, coming out of Jamestown than I can list. Um, but it was a it was a ripe environment. I'm be I'm beginning to wonder, Steve, when you mentioned that. It, it's interesting how, you know, when I was in my band in Anchorage playing bass. Uh, oh, right. Yeah, that's right. What was the name of your band again? Uh, Hopscotch. That's right. Yeah. And the only reason I played bass is because they needed one. And I said, well, sure. I mean, it's, I've been playing guitar or trying to all these years, just two, two less strings. And it was punk rock, so it was pretty easy. Yeah. But there was a vital music scene in Anchorage and vital in... Well, look at the grunge era out of Seattle, right? Vital right. uh, in Jamestown. I think maybe atmosphere and weather and climate and, you know, annual holding up in your bedroom because going outside sucks. Maybe there's uh, something to be said about Jamestown and the, the vital music scene there because winters were harsh and long yeah. and not much else to do in those areas. That's right. And out of necessity, if you will. These guys would shed in their bedrooms during winter and just become masters of their craft. That that's uh, that's a good point, and that's what John L would do. Uh, like every month, he'd show me new stuff that he's learned, and it's like, wow, you know, you can play that too. And because he 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 wasn't sleeping, he was sitting up late at night studying, playing, putting the needle back on that spot in the in the record, and listening and getting it down, and put it back and listen and get it down. That's how you learned how to play guitar back then. Uh, and I'll just just a nod to other uh, Jamestown musicians: uh, Billy Weber, Scott Talley, uh, Randy Schrank, uh, drummer, um, has a studio now. They're still playing. I was working in a factory with Bill Weber one time, and uh, you know we're soldering things together and cutting metal and <laughs> doing the drilling holes, doing the usual stuff, and. Uh, 
finally he, he said, you know what, I'm going to quit. I'm going to buy a guitar. I'm going to teach myself how to play guitar. And he did. He said, if I can spend eight hours drilling holes in sheet metal, uh, I can spend eight hours studying guitar. Now, you know what, I'm 73, he's 70, probably. And Scott Daly is 70. They're playing, they got a hot band. Uh, 25 years ago, Billy Weber is one of the hottest guitar players I'd see. Wow. Finger tapping, you know, all that heavy, big hair rock stuff is not my kind of music, but he was good. They're they're a good band. They've got two female singers and uh, and a keyboardist. And that's a really good point. I mean, when I'm watching a three and a half hour movie, Killers of the Flower Moon, I'm thinking that's three and a half hours that I could be practicing guitar, you know, and and like Leisha will be. Uh, well, you know, like once I was on this jag that I really wanted to pick up the saxophone. And, uh, well, and you're probably going through this too with the harmonica. You just started picking up the harmonica. It's mm-hmm. like, I'd love to learn a new instrument, but I told Leisha, why would I spend, I'd rather spend my time learning, instead of learning that instrument, being better at the one that I know that I could sit down. You know what I mean? It's just yeah. the investment. Yeah. I, what I what I like to do with that is take you know what what I've learned with guitar you know like the notes the chords the scales the, you know the theory the, all that kind of stuff and pick it out on a piano and say okay if I'm playing you know boop, 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 on a guitar whatever what's that sound like on a keyboard so you know what are the chords what are the notes what are the scales and you know I haven't spent a lot of time because you're right if I'm playing I'd rather be playing. Uh, guitar, and that's one of the things. I'm getting some arthritis in my left forearm and wrist, which is interfering with a lot of playing. And I notice when I play the piano, it's worse. <laughs> I can play the harmonica, though. Thanks, Susie. I can play the harmonica without wrecking my wrist. Harnesses, <laughs> Steve, that you mount the harmonica on your guitar around your neck? or I'm going to get one sometime. Uh, you know, if I, because it's like like with the piano and guitar, it's like with the harmonica, whatever I'm doing, it's like I'm trying to think, what what would I do with the guitar? What do I know about guitar that will, you know, that I can play on this? And I'll try to do a tune or something like that. And I'm not good enough yet to play a song. I'm learning how to hold the darn thing and how to breathe into it. Um, but if I ever, if I make enough progress, I'd love to be able to strum and play and you know you know, you know Bob Dylan you know those that Bruce yeah. Springsteen <laughs> all the people that blah 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 <laughs> and and you're talking about learning how to hold it does it blow your mind that they're not holding it and they're still able to play what they play without yeah. putting it up to their mouth and then it's that's intense. Yeah, there, you know, there's a lot of room for variation on a on a harmonica and a guitar. There's every kind of guitar style playing. How do you hold it? Yeah. You know, how do you hold your pick? How do you, you know, all, what technique do you use? We'll be right back. Guitar Garage Talk is brought to you by YourGuitarMechanic.com. 
setups, repairs, restrings, and more. Whatever your guitar or bass needs, we can get it done. Offering pickup and delivery service in the greater Charlotte, North Carolina area. YourGuitarMechanic.com Now, back to the program. You know, there, there are people that are awesome players that have it on their lap. <laughs> exactly. Or with their feet. I've seen guys that do amazing things with just their feet, you know? Yeah. I was going to say, what I like are the street musicians. There's one guy that I knew, he was a client of mine uh, back in the day hospital days, and he was a great musician. He's about my age, maybe he's a year or two older. Uh, had a drum, harmonica, and a guitar that he tuned really tight because he could, you know, had big strings and he tuned it high. So uh, he could get a bigger noise out of it. So he'd be uh, drumming with his drum set with his feet, playing his harmonica and playing on the street corner. He wow. was crazy as a loon, but he was really good. Wow. So when did you make the segue to guitar? You were right oh, yeah. thinking, I'm going to go through life as a bass player. The bass is what I have. I'm attracted to it. I've just won second prize at a talent show playing bass. Uh, when did you go, you know what? Maybe I should do what Don Ells did. You know, if I want to learn adventures and those cool surf riffs, do I need to get a six string? When, when did that transition happen? Let's see. Hard saying. Early 70s. Uh, when I... Uh, got out of high school and went to um, started college. I sold my bass, and I, of course, every guitar you've ever sold, I regret it. I wish I still had it. Yeah. Now it's worth three thousand dollars. <laughs> it would be, or two thousand, or something. Uh, but I sold it. My dad was upset because I sold it for let you know cheap. I gave it away basically to my good friend John Lang, who was a fabulous bass player, and. Uh, and his whole family. In fact, okay, getting back to the Jameson, I'll digress a little bit, but still be on focus. The Lang family. Uh, John Lang played bass with Al Atkins from Maryland, who was a violin player, but a great guitar player. And that little band, a three-piece band back in 69-70. And the Lang family, John Lang's dad. Les Lang uh, played saxophone, was a jazz player, and a guy that bought the radio station from Chicago who knew the jazz players from Chicago, I forget some of the names, they'd come to visit um, Mr. Crilly, uh, I forget, Ed Crilly, uh, and Les Lang, Ed Crilly, and guests from Chicago would play jazz in their living room. Uh, and John Lang grew, you know, I think he was born with a guitar in his hand. I mean, there, there are a bunch of bands. I mean, when I, after I left Jamestown in 75, the town was filled with several bands with uh, dozens of great musicians. Wow. Uh, the Lang family was one of them. Did any of them go on to, to make any recordings or break out of the, the small town vibe of being the, the big fish in a small town to being, a, you know full-time professional recording traveling band or not that i can think of let's see oh i don't think i can't think of any uh any musicians that made a big time from jamestown other than uh peggy lee peggy lee yeah 
That's from Jamestown. You don't, you know, Peggy Lee? Yeah. Yeah, okay, yeah, she's from Jamestown. Did she ever come back to Jamestown and say, hey, here's where it all started, thank you for... Probably not. <laughs> not that I know of. Forget where we were headed. Oh, let's see, the transition from base to there. Sold my base, ran around, did a bunch of things. That was back in the day when I was doing a lot of traveling, wasn't holding any jobs, was hitchhiking around the country. Um, and wherever I landed, or somebody had a guitar, that'd be, that'd be you know, everybody go to bed or whatever, and I'd go pick up the guitar and strum it, you know, go, go over my, you know, practice my AED chords <laughs> and strum and stuff like that. Um, speaking of those AED chords, or EAD chords, uh, one time a friend of mine and I were in the Grand Canyon, uh, and we were there without a permit. And uh, uh, we were meeting people around the canyon. And there was a guy with a sailboat. He was an old guy. I think he was from Europe, Germany, or Norway or something. And he had a guitar, and we sat in his tent, and he played us some tunes. And he played a Johnny Cash tune. I walked the line, I think. Nice. And I, I remember watching him. I didn't touch his guitar, but I watched him. And then probably 25 or 30 years later, I was thinking, Hey, that's right. There's that guy, and I remembered him playing. Oh, of course, I walked the line or easy chords, but uh, it's like it was around the time that I was that I was thinking. You know what? I think I will try to play guitar more seriously and learn some stuff besides E A D C G. By then, I knew C and G too. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, an F R chord. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that was, uh, but that was one of the songs that I picked up from. 20 years earlier that I remembered watching somebody play and thought, I think I can play that. And it's like, oh yeah, there it is. So what you're saying, Steve, is and, and were you guitarless when you went to Woodstock? Yeah, probably pretty much. Although I'd stay in Minneapolis and I knew several people that had guitars laying around. And so I, same thing. I'd pick them up if I saw them. Yeah, but I didn't. The thing is that that, that that attraction was always there. It was in yeah. you're watching you know, Hendrix on stage, you're watching a, a guy in the Grand Canyon in a tent playing it, and you're always logging in those those memories of when the instrument was in your vicinity and when you were able to pick it up yourself and, and interact with it. Yeah, and there, I mean, there. Are, I lived in Jamestown for a few years, and there are always people with guitars around, and I'd, I'd pick them up. I remember John Hill got a new Martin guitar, like 1972, Whoa. Whoa. His, his nicest first guitar first acoustic guitar is nicest one and he said here play it so i picked it up and i <laughs> did something and i put a little ding in it uh, like, oh, sorry <laughs> sorry here <laughs> what do you do to put a ding in a guitar just by picking it up or what the <laughs> i don't know what i did yeah bump something German bump. you know we were outside and i bumped something uh, i found something to do but I, you know as i was picking up i think the first guitar i bought for my own, that was my guitar after the bass, might have been, no, you know what? I had a house in Jamestown before 75 too. I had a cheap guitar there and a piano. Because uh, when I didn't have a guitar, I was banging away on mom's piano. Sure. And I, when I moved, I moved her piano out one time and me and a friend were driving it and uh, in the back of his pickup, I was moving out of there. Well, I had moved out of there. And <laughs> Mom had said, "That's your, you're here. I'll give you my piano." She wasn't playing it, 
And um, when we put it in the back of his pickup and we were driving, we just sort of turned a little corner slowly, tipped out of the back of the pickup, bam! It's like, oh, you know, like we were both like, oh no, you know, eyes are big. We got out, two of us picked up this big upright piano, threw it back in the truck. <laughs> And drove, you know, smashed. And I told my mom about it, and she said, What? You broke my piano. <laughs> and I was thinking, I thought you gave it to me. She needed room in her living room. You know, it was taking up too much space. She wanted it out of there. Uh, but I remember living in that house. Not only did I have guitars around, and, I and John L. lived there for a few months. He took over the house after I left um, in 75. Um, on that piano, I remember teaching myself how to play While My Guitar Gently Weeps. And to this day, it's like, how did I do that? I mean, I can play it on the guitar easily enough, but you know, how did I learn it on the piano? But uh, Proco Harum was a big uh, influencer on the piano. Stuff. So was, yeah, Wider Shade of Pale. And, and the second album had a bunch of piano, dramatic piano tunes. Oh, okay. Plus, John Lang showed me a boogie woogie thing that was really easy, and I still play that. <laughs> there was always something. Flutophone. Guitar, piano, something. I was always doing something like that. Never got good. Never, never really took lessons. Never studied guitar. I actually I did take lessons from JB for a few months and trade for something. I sold him something and he taught me something. I forget what. Um, and then I was just you know like hang out with other guitar players and Tom Tom uh, Savory, for one, um, that I've mentioned to you. Uh, he and I played a lot in the 80s and 90s. Um, I picked up a bass again later in the in the mid 80s to 90s. I had a really nice hollow body guild bass. Oh wow! And I wish I had that one. It was really it was probably it was probably better than the Gibson. It's a really nice one. Uh, I think how I got rid of a lot of instruments that I had accumulated over the 80s. I had a really bad um, electric guitar once. Uh, my first like oh okay. Late 80s in my house, bought my first electric guitar um, from uh, some big music store around here. Yeah, little amp. I remember Mike and Susie were visiting once. They said, look, here's my electric guitar. And I tried to play a couple of stuff on it, but, you know, it wasn't very good. It wasn't the Fender. Uh, so I, I don't know why I picked that one up. Uh, I, I think it was... It, it was like a heat wave back in those days, and it was the most days in the hundreds that Minneapolis had experienced. Oh. Uh, it was around that time. I associate that with that guitar. Um, but then when it, what uh, instruments I had accumulated, you know, uh, electric bass, electric guitar, uh, amplifiers, a couple other things. Then I saw, no, I think I bought my first Taylor then, Taylor 510. And I think I traded in a bunch of those stuff. Is that the Taylor you have now? No, uh, the Taylor uh, kind of wore out after a while. Even though I did my best to humidify it and take good care of it, it was starting to dry out. Between uh, you know, Minneapolis is a dry area in the all winter long. Uh, but you know what? Twenty-five years later, I sold it or traded it in for my current Taylor. Uh, but another time in there, I'd accumulated some instruments too, and I traded all those in to get my Fender Stratocaster, which I have now. That was nineteen. 90 or 90, it was 91 or two, I forget, 90, 92. Which is the one that you kind of gravitate towards the most and why? You know, there, I've gone back and forth. Um, mostly the Taylor, mostly the acoustic playing. It's mostly what I play because it's there, it's easy to pick up. You don't have to 
roll everything out and plug in and stuff. And it's, you know, you can take it anywhere. It's uh, It's got pickups, of course, the acoustic. But me and my friends, Tom, uh, Susie, um, Susie and her husband, Chris, uh, we've spent a few years playing uh, out of the real book. We just exclusively played songs out of the real book. And um, to this day of the maybe four dozen songs that I know part of the way through, there's not one song that I know that I, that's a, uh, what would you call it? Uh, public ready, performance ready, that I can play all the way through uh, spotless. But I know dozens and dozens of songs that I can play. Sections. 90% of it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Not, not keeping time or anything like that. Uh, and so, I mean, any one of those. But anyway, we did that a lot with the real book. And, and most of the songs that I know that I probably can play all the way through uh, are jazz tunes from the real book. Awesome. Um, so that, that, was, that was really my orientation to playing a little more consistency. Learned some scales from JB and, and played jazz, jazz real book and uh, did that over time with my acoustic guitar. Because Susie was a fabulous mandolin player. Oh, nice. Very good accompaniment. Um, Chris was a decent guitar player. And Tom was a pretty decent guitar player, too. Back then, he was pretty decent. He's gotten much better in the 20 years since then. Um, so that's probably how I mostly learned. And so it's like now, or in the last 10 years, 10 or 15 years, I have to go back and learn some of those songs that I was listening to in my 20s, teens and 20s. Over the decades, Steve, uh, when you pick concerts to go to, because I know that's one of my downfalls. It, well, downfall, I guess I could call it a downfall, but it might be a blessing, actually. I always pick the concerts where I know the guitarist and I'm going to watch the guitarist. Over the decades, did you gravitate towards Okay, I've got to go see these guys because yada yada's on guitar. Yeah, uh, for sure. Let's see. Well, like the last twenty years, for sure, the performers that I've seen the most of, Richard Thompson, whether he's solo or with a three-piece band or a five-piece band, he played with an accordion player and and uh, fiddler. Richard Thompson has been my go-to musician for the last twenty years, at least. At least twenty years because of his guitar, because of his guitar playing, he's like peerless uh, as far as popular tunes, uh, especially European-based popular tunes. Uh, you know, steering rock and roll songs, but a lot of really deep um, ballad. You know, British-based ballads. You know, about war and love and crooks mostly. <laughs> He's a powerful singer. He's an impressive performer. And his guitar playing, it's mind-blowing. You can, I can, when I listen to his recorded stuff, I have to remind myself he's the only guitar player on stage. When you see him in person, it's like, how's he getting those sounds out of that? He's really, he's, uh, he's one of my primary guitar heroes. I haven't listened to him much lately. Any moments from previous concerts where it's like, 
shit, I remember watching Pete Townsend smash his last ball, or I remember when, you know, yeah, threw his guitar in the audience, or any of those moments that the guitar players shine in your memory from concerts past. Yeah, so many. I'll try, I'll go through a few of them. Uh, one of my favorite stories, I'm sure you've heard it a couple dozen times, uh, seeing, uh, well, I used to see Paul Rear and the Raiders a lot in Fargo. They'd yeah. come through, and they were always fun. I mean, they were good. They were tight. They were, I knew I had all the records. They were yeah. good. Paul Rear and the Raiders. They lost at State Fair. <laughs> uh, one, another band, one we saw at the band was uh, um, uh, Big Big Brother and the Holding Company without Janice Joplin, me and you and Jeff. Oh, and, she was pretty good. She actually held her own. Well, one of the uh, one of the uh, biggest mind boilers was um, going to see. This was after a few uh, Paul Revere and Raider uh, shows. Um, Herman's Hermits, opened by Blues Magoos. Herman's Hermits was the main band, but opening were Blues Magoos, and second in, in line was The Who. Oh wow! Oh man! <laughs> like nineteen sixty six. Oh. You know, like they, I think they had "I Can See for Miles" out as their single, oh. but this was their first American tour. Yeah, wow! And man, the place went nuts. Oh, man! And of course, smashed all their instruments at the end. Yeah. The next time, you know, a few months later, they came back to Fargo. They were the opener because everybody went, "Who's Hermans, Hermits, and Blues Magoos?" <laughs> <laughs> Funny. They did an opening, or they, they were the only act, I think. Wow. Yeah. And um, and they uh, they wrecked the place, and the the crowd rioted, and uh, and mayhem ensued. And so Fargo banned rock music for you know a, a brief moment. Wow. But after that, in Fargo, I saw you know Jefferson Airplane, Eric Burden and the Animals, and a few other you know Bob Dylan a couple of times, sure. um, like that. But then other other bands, of course, Woodstock. You know, I mean, that was the king of king of. You know, that was uh, beyond beyond words. Yeah. You know, the band, the Who. Uh, Ten years after, I missed Hendrix. I missed Santana. Uh, you know, all those, but I saw so many great bands. The year of '69, I was in college, NDSU. Uh, friends of mine picked me up, and we went down and saw the Grateful Dead at the Labor Temple in Minneapolis. That was a total mind-blowing experience. And by the end of the year, oh, and then just before that, that was that was February or March '69. Two months before that, I saw Hendrix in Minneapolis. You did get to see Hendrix. Then. You did. You yeah. missed Woodstock, but you did get to see him live. Yeah, saw him before a uh, year before Woodstock. More, well, eight, ten, ten months before Woodstock. Oh man. Uh, and, and you know it was kind of actually it was kind of disappointing. He was doing his record. It was a tour. He was hitting all the bands. So this is November '68, and uh, he was just playing his the hits off his record. He played for 45 minutes. Wow, that's a quick show. Yeah, it was, and it's kind of like really that's it. That's all you got for us. <laughs> uh, it wasn't. It wasn't the performance that disappointed you. It was the length of time, right? Yeah, it's that he did. Uh, he did the he did the songs off his record. You know, are you experienced? Hey Joe, Purple Haze. 
And I don't think he, I don't think he did an encore. Oh, son of a gun. Yeah. We'll be right back. Guitar Garage Talk is brought to you by YourGuitarMechanic.com. Setups, repairs, restrings, and more. Whatever your guitar or bass needs, we can get it done. Offering pickup and delivery service in the greater Charlotte, North Carolina area. YourGuitarMechanic.com. Now, back to the program. You know, actually, one of my probably the earliest guitar hero, Lonnie Knight, a local guy uh, here, used to tour around the Midwest and came to Jamestown a few times. Joker's, oh, Joker's Wild first, and then Flash Tuesday. Flash Tuesday was an awesome band. And they did, they, he was a big Jeff Beck fan. He was an awesome guitar player. He's like six foot four, skinny as a rail, long blonde hair, high heeled boots, uh, bell bottoms back in those days. Three three piece band. It was, it was the first time I saw like the big double bass setup and a drummer with biceps and just you know killer drummer. They were awesome. And I was trying to think uh, before the interview. I thought, let's see, Lonnie Knight, what? Uh, what was his band before his Flash Tuesday? You know, we, we just traveled everywhere to see him. So I, I, I thought, I wonder if he's on you. I looked him up uh, to see if I could remember, find the name of the band. Found an interview with him on some local radio station back then. He was releasing a record. He played also since then, years since then, because Flash Tuesday and Joker's Wild. And he always went back and forth from doing a solo acoustic thing to a rock and roll band and playing with the blues bands around town. Hoop Snakes. Uh, Bruce McCabe and uh, and Bruce and Bingham McCabe band, or Bruce McCabe and Bingham somebody Bingham band, and and he'd sit in with those guys. You know, he by that time he had forty years experience as a blues rock guitar player, and uh, was a showman and really good. And so in that interview he said, "Oh yeah, well I played with the Hoops Snakes." I said, "Oh, that's one of the names of the local bands." And he said, "And then and I played a lot with Bruce McCabe before the Johnny Lang thing happened." <laughs> and it's like, oh, that's right. That was about then. So that's when Johnny Lang, the 14-year-old from Fargo, came down and Bruce McCabe took him under his wing and introduced him to all the blues players in Minneapolis. <laughs> so it was fun to hear that reference. That's the Johnny Lang that, that we saw in Atlanta. We at the Hendrix Festival in Atlanta, and Johnny Lang is one of the guys, and you're like, oh, that's Johnny Lang. I'm like, who? <laughs> Yeah. Uh, well, now we know. Yeah, that's right. Now I know. Yeah, he, his. I think that was his first big outing. Was uh, a big Cedar Fest uh, in Minneapolis. Outdoor, twelve stages outdoor, spread through a whole neighborhood, the West Bank neighborhood, and uh, they, they had held those for several years, and they were a lot of fun. International scene. There was Shane Goya. There was uh, salsa bands. There was all the R and B bands and. Funkadelic bands uh, that Minneapolis has produced uh, would break out and turn the town into a stage. What was the name of the book you told me about, about the, the West? Uh, oh, West Bank Boogie. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Written by Sid uh, Collins. Okay. Okay. And I saw a couple copies on Amazon and eBay. Found it on eBay. Oh, wow. Yeah. If you ever need it, I'll loan it to you if you ever want to see it. It's it's chock full of Minneapolis history. I'd love to. I'd love to. Do, you, do you ever think about going on Google and 
searching some of these names and seeing if there's photos or recordings out there that someone happened to have a tape deck set up and and they've got some of these bands that you're talking about in Jamestown. And you think anyone was out there archiving that material? Uh, every now and then I'll I, I check uh, YouTube for something like that, and every now and then I'm surprised. But yeah, I'll, I'll look more for like some of the. I, I doubt if anybody. I doubt if there's anything on the walkers. Um, but maybe probably the unbelievable uglies because they're still around. They they were really a good show band. They were good. Yeah. Well, back in those days, getting back to the uh, pavilions around lakes, you know, there's the Carrington Pavilion, Ra Rainbow something Pavilion. There's the Spiritwood Lake Pavilion. There's the one in Detroit Lakes and all that. Back in the '60s, there were these touring bands from uh, R&B bands, Spider and the Crabs. The, Fabulous flippers. They come out of Lawrence, Kansas. Some, there must have been some big production agency there, sending all these great brass R&B bands, sending around, you know, touring around the Midwest. Those are the days. Like back then, before that was only AM radio. So there'd be these big boomers, you know, like uh, the guy that broadcast from Mexico, uh, Wolfman Jack. Okay. Uh, there was KOMA from Oklahoma City. Yeah, Oklahoma City. Uh, middle of the night, you could drive out to the out in the country and tweak your antenna or something, and and uh, get that one. And, and Bleecker Street from Little Rock, Arkansas. These were big. That's where you got your uh, latest music. Uh, I think there's a big station out of uh, Minneapolis too, Twin Cities, but not a big boomer that broadcast across the whole country. What are your thoughts on on guitar? I mean, when you do you ever explore new music, uh, like open up YouTube and check out what's going on now with with, with guitarists? And or, I mean, are there any out there that you, or you, you don't have to name names, but like maybe style or anything that you're gravitating towards? Or what, how do you, maybe the question is better asked, is the role of guitar playing changing in music yeah there's i know there's been a slice of uh slice of popular music out that doesn't catch my attention that i'm not drawn to um i suppose it you know maybe ballady maybe a lot of different instrumentation maybe a lot of international influences yeah. which by the way i'm i'm all in favor of uh, as far as the new music that's routinely broadcast yeah uh not that drawn to it right um there there's exceptions you know there are there are youngster bands like not youngster bands um one of the one of the i suppose newer bands from this century the decemberists from the west coast from seattle area or portland maybe okay uh they're good i, I like what they're doing uh they're you know like uh, acoustic instrument driven, stand-up bass, mandolin, uh, violin, acoustic guitar, all amplified, of course. Oh, Trampled by Turtles, yeah. yeah. I went and listened to some of their stuff, and it kind of has that feel, too, that old-worldly, back-to-the-real you know, instruments and yeah, right. overproduced sound. It's good stuff. Uh, Billy Strings, you know, is a... Famous acoustic guitar player is really good. I've seen a few clips of him, but I'm not that familiar. Um, there, there's a lot of you know, like 
you know, watching Saturday Night Live when they bring on new bands and stuff like that. Yeah. It's like, ah. let me tell you, the world's filled with great musicians. Yeah. But but it's also filled with a lot of goofy ass music, if you ask me. No, I <laughs> you know, look, there's six chords, you know, and, and you use four of them most of the time. Put some strings on it. Put on a vocalist who's got a good voice. Yeah. And uh, try, you know, put them in clothes where their body's kind of sticking out of their clothes. Mm -hmm. and have them sing, and uh, and you don't see a band. And if they got a backup band, I'm all for it. Yeah. If you can see the players and they have to play together, I'm all yeah. for it. Absolutely. But when it's kind of like piped in music and somebody just singing. Yeah. I, I, there's there is, it loses that tactile human element there. And I don't know, man. I, for some reason, I think the majority of the new generation, because they eat it up in droves, and the the machine keeps pumping out the stuff that's getting eaten up. It you know those those glowing musicians that that do have blisters on their fingers and, and learn how to become one with their instrument and create stuff. I, it it almost seems like it's disappearing. Well, you know, one of my favorite new favorite newer musicians, newer in the last several years, um, John Batiste. Yes, absolutely. Because I mean, it's like when he performs, he blows my mind. Uh, and I, I'm, I'm developing this attitude that uh, people that go to Juilliard and uh, Berkeley and uh, Boston, Berkeley School of Music and stuff like that, great training. You get that knowledge. The ones that drop out because they're impatient with the curriculum, yeah, the ones to look for. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Everything Batiste does, you can hear his Norlands influence in there. He yeah. always has that one foot in his traditional, you know, background. I, I like that about him. Seeing that, um, not to get off on a single performer's uh, uh, direction so much, but um, have you seen his um, documentary on Netflix? Not yet. Not yet. Every time I see the trailer for it, though, I'm like, oh, God, I'm going to cry. I know that's going to be a problem. <laughs> I know there are sad moments in it, but boy, when he plays, oh, yeah. I mean, and like that documentary is about John Batiste as a human being. And let me tell you, I I loved him for his humanity before I loved his music. I mean, even though him his playing piano for Colbert for years was just amazing. That was the main part of the show for me. It's like, yay, stay human. <laughs> cool. I do. I do see a documentary. Recently, uh, I think it was last year on Ron Carter on PBS. Really? Oh, yeah. wow. He's sitting down with Batiste in one part because Ron Carter goes to studio to studio. Whoever asks him to play bass, and he'll show up. And uh, there is a, set of, a segment with him sitting down with John Batiste, and it's it, it's pretty cool. I mean, they just got this vocabulary and this, you know, it's a, Batiste is an incredible musician. Oh man, an incredible human! And uh, Ron Carter, he's still playing and touring. Yes, he is. Yeah, Alicia and I—I I told you, Alicia and I saw him at the Blue Note. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's right. Oh man, and it was like for me to this wall from the stage. I was just. And then and the rest of the band. I mean, he had this lady on piano, and I've—I've I've actually looked up. 
that setup that he had, he had a horn player, a drummer, and a, and a lady on piano. And uh, he has some recordings with that with that group, and just phenomenal, phenomenal. And and he's he's one of those guys like Batiste that's able to dabble in classical and dabble in and then there's of course of jazz and just I mean I guess Ron Carter sometimes he's played on rap albums too, you know hip hip hop tracks, you know because he believes in the music, and and that's that's where it genre be damned. Yeah, John L has on him once on campus in a room about this size. <laughs> so everybody's knees were knocked together, and Ron Carter was there. And when was that? Had to be in the early to mid '80s. Wow. Was it was it his own thing? Huh. Oh man, that's cool. I don't remember if any who else played with him. Huh? It was like. Uh, all I saw was Ron Carter. All I remember is Ron Carter. <laughs> Pretty sure he didn't play solo, but you know, I don't remember a piano or a horn or a drum. <laughs> if you were, if you were, if someone was, if, if and well, you did it with me. You, I, I remember watching you playing this acoustic guitar in Jamestown at the age of ten, and I think I had that you sitting in front of John L. Uh, moment where you're like wow what is he doing there's that magic there i don't think i could and i and and then you handed me the guitar and i was like i think that's the first time i ever experienced crying from happiness at the age of 10 it was just like mind-blowing and if you were to you know pass on or say some kid comes up and he's like hey uh i'm thinking about picking up guitar i i, I see you have a guitar in the uh, any suggestions? What, what would you tell them as a guitar? I mean, what would the words of wisdom be? Well, you know, like uh, learn the basics, play them over and over, and then uh, and then just keep on playing and practice, practice, practice. You know, trade in sleep and work for uh, for holding up in your room and and listen. I mean, actually, one thing that I didn't do very well is listen. You know, train my ear. Listen, you know, like learn songs, listen what it's doing and connect. You know, I mean, like play what you want to, but play a lot. Practice, practice, practice and, and do something new every day. That's what I'd say. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, push yourself, you know, learn some theory, learn some tricks, learn some shortcuts, play what sounds fun, play what feels good. And that's the key. Have fun. Don't overstress yourself about it. If you see these people like that moment when you're playing in Anchorage and you're visiting us and I. And I've had that I had that moment a couple other times with, with other guitarists where it's like, holy shit, I'm never going to get this. You know what I mean? I, I, this guy's five years younger than me, and he can play this tune. And I'm like, how did you do that one? You know, and they're like, oh, just like this. And, I'm like, oh, and you're like, uh, okay, wait, hold on. Eh, don't get discouraged. And if you can't, you're never going to be like everybody else. Oh, that's right. You're going to be you, and you're playing what you want to play and what's coming out of you. And I think that those are the guitarists that I'm attracted to personally, is the guitarists that divert from the norm, you know, like Jeff Beck or Hendrix or, you know, the, the guys that take the basics and go in different directions with it. And you're like, well, okay, now that's a direction I've never heard before. That doesn't make it wrong. There is no wrong or right. It's what's the only thing that's right is what you're feeling and you're doing it. Playing yeah. with your feet, playing it on your lap, 
playing a song in a different key, you know, don't let that discourage you that you're not sounding like or looking like what they're doing. That would that would have been the advice I'd give my maybe when I started taking it seriously at the age of 16, 17, 18, uh, is that's the advice I would have given me as, as a younger player. Don't lock down in the, geez, I, I can't do that. Or yes, but you can do that, you know. Yeah, right. Yeah, you do the, you do this. And if, and if it's fun, do a little bit more, find more fun. Yeah. You know, there was a, I, I forget where I saw this, somewhere. Uh, some musician that we probably know, and I don't remember who it was, I was talking about. Uh, being at the show, he was one of the performers. There were some fans hanging out, and that's another band walked on or came out or joined the room or something. And the guy said, "Oh man, you know, you know, what are they doing here?" or something like that. And the guy that he was talking to turned on him and said, "What do you mean? It's not who's good. It's music. It's all music. Don't you know?" That's all I had to say. It's all music. Don't judge who's what's good and what isn't good. I think it, I think something else that I teach, teach, tell, and pass on the knowledge of is dive into other genres. I mean, I sat through that PBS documentary from Ken Burns on country, uh, country western music. Yeah. And, and and I was like, why in all those years did I shun this genre? When for one, it's so guitar related. I mean, guitar is the is the the rock foundation of country music, right? Yeah. And and just dabble in and don't be afraid to sit down and listen to a classical, even if there isn't guitar in it. Uh, listen to uh, an Elton John piano riff or a Beethoven symphony. You know, don't don't lock yourself into like I want to be a metal guitar player. That's what I need to listen to. And I think uh, I see younger kids bringing guitars to me, and I'm like, "Have you ever heard of Veta? No, no. You know, they're like, "Yeah, but I've heard the new Metallica, or you know, and, and they know the names. And, they, and I'm and I and I'm looking at these kids going, "God, if I could just." And I don't want to sound like the old man in the room, but it's like, take a listen to you know, Blues Breakers with Eric Clapton, or take a listen to the Who, My Generation, and and you'll know where it was coming from when James Hetfield Metallica picked up a guitar and, you know, yeah. and so I think that's, that's a piece of wisdom I'd pass on to a younger crowd too, is expand your horizons. Yeah. I had to, I had to rethink, I had to redo some of that. There was a brief time, you know, when I was a kid and uh, Hendrix and the doors and cream were all coming out and all that. Uh, you know, when I was like, oh, you know, Johnny Cash, he's not cool, or oh, Hank Williams, or, or you know, like yeah. some of those others. It's like, holy smokes, Johnny Cash, you know, Hank Williams, one of the greatest songwriters. Jeez, you know, yeah. come on, you guys. Yeah, and I've got a bit of a bone to pick too, and I, I have a tough time with um, uh, these algorithms and and uh, uh, you know what you know. Google and Spotify and iTunes and all these other places saying, you know, oh, we know what kind of music you like because they, you know, somehow they probably know what my playlist is and mine, whatever. We we created a playlist for you and it's all Zeppelin, Who, you know, Green, Fleetwood Mac. You know, it's like, 
cut it out, man. You're like, you got to jump around the world a little bit. It, it, I think, and that's a very good point, Steve, because I think algorithms need to change at the times too. And I think an algorithm that you resonated with, I mean, and they probably try and do it, uh, if you happen to listen to Beethoven over here and and uh, Jimi Hendrix over here, and you know, maybe the algorithm should be pointing towards, oh, Patrick happens to be, he likes songs in D major. Have you ever tried listening to this tune in D major? Or, you know, that kind of stuff. Algorithms need to get a little more sophisticated. And then it will be less linear, like you're saying, and and broaden our horizons as listeners. You know, um, going back to what you were talking about earlier, uh, some of the uh, some of my lack of discipline and not practicing and not working really hard from when I was a kid and all that kind of stuff. It's like I had by nature I have so many interests. I couldn't focus on playing guitar. I couldn't. Uh, you know, I mean, the, I, I only I could only hear the music that I could hear that was being broadcast or what I'd see at a band, but I could never stay focused on one task for very long. It's like, okay, oh, fun. Look, I learned a new chord. Isn't that great? Uh, but it's a big world, and I'd go do something else. I go, I'm going to go. I'm going bike riding. <laughs> I'm going to once I'm bike riding, I'm going to go swimming. You know, I'm going to I'm going to read this set of books and I'm going to read this set of books and I'm going to see these movies, you know, like it's just my, I couldn't, uh, I had too many, I still have too many interests to get good at any one thing. And I've always been driven around by that. And so when there's playlists, uh, I, I I don't want to hear, I mean, every, I, sometimes in the, I'm in the mood to hear something old, but familiar. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I mean, mostly, I guess, because I don't really want to, I don't really like some of the new music, but um, I need to not jump from band to band. That's kind of a like, I need to jump from genre to genre, uh, from country to country, to, you know, like, I just need variety. So the best playlist for me is my music collection, and I hit song, and I hit scramble. And then I get everything. I get the big bands from the 40s. I get Ella Fitzgerald. I get jazz from Brazil. I get uh, an old rock and roll tune. I'll get somebody from the UK. I'll get some uh, violin music. I'll get some uh, uh, Billy Holiday. I'll get some uh, Muddy Waters. I'll get some, um, uh, yeah. You know, you should, you know what you should put in there is some Tibetan throat singing. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, right. Exactly. No, I've, uh, I, <laughs> there's this documentary I saw, or a movie I saw. I guess it was a documentary. There's a black blues player, blind, from the Bay Area. And uh, he was listening to late night radio one time. And he, he, he played clubs in San Francisco. And he heard throat singing. He thought, what in the world is that? So he taught himself how to throat sing. Wow. He went to Mongolia and entered a contest. It's a documentary. Yeah, yeah. You yeah. Can, you can, I don't know what the name of it is, but look up throat singing movie from the 90s or 80s, 90s. Wow. I'm going to end every podcast with everyone I talk to, every episode with the same question 
uh, and you probably gave this one a lot of research, I'm sure, because you said you were researching, and that would be the impossible question. <laughs> <laughs> Last but not least, Steve, what three guitar tunes would you put on your Desert Island guitar mixtape? Yeah, that's almost an impossible question. I'm going to digress just one half a conversation ago when I was thinking of uh, the throat singer. I got to plug another documentary from the late 90s, maybe 99, 2000, 2001, around there. Uh, Schultz Gets the Blues. Uh, it's a story, it's not a documentary, it's a story about a German or Austrian accordion player. Have I told you about that before? Yeah, and I and I definitely have to look it up. Oh man, Schultz gets the blues, and yet I was reminded of it because yesterday I heard a story, um, a short story on NPR NPR about uh, in Germany there's a band that plays New Orleans music, brass band. You know, and it's like there's you know they're just doing all the New Orleans sound. Nice. In Germany, and people walk into that bar. The bar is packed every night. They don't know what the hell that is. But they love. Thought, oh, that's like Schultz. gets the blues. Anyway, look it up. Okay. Schultz gets the blues. Okay, it's great. It's a good story too. Awesome. Thanks. Man. Appreciate okay. it. Okay. Yeah. So, three guitar tunes you put on a Desert Island mixtape. You know, like it. I think that that leads right into the conversation that we were having about variety. And I can't be focused on, you know, the same thing. And and that's a tough question because it's like, holy smokes. Yeah. From all the music that I've loved over the last 75 years, 70, 70 years plus, you know, actually, when I was a kid on the farm, less than five, we only had a radio. Uh, and I was, I was I'd listened to uh, early 50s songs. Uh, from then, and I, you know, that's all we did. We didn't have TV, we didn't have a telephone, we didn't have running water, we had, you know, all that. So I've been listening to the radio since I was one. There's, uh, I, I did pick out three songs that kind of sort of represent a spectrum, I guess. Okay. Because, I, I mean, you know, it's like, if I was on, if I was on a uh, Desert Island, of course I'd want some Led Zeppelin, of course I'd want some Beatles, of course I'd want some Beach Boys and some Ventures and all that kind of stuff. But songs that I, that keep coming back, um, uh, one one uh, popular rock and roll tune that I picked is Little Wayne Hendrix. Uh, that's a simple tune, it's over way too soon, but it's always been beautiful and I've always loved that whole album, that second Hendrix second album since 69, I've loved it. But yeah. Little Wayne is always stuck in my head. That's a great choice, man. And I never, uh, I never get tired of it. You know, I only hear it every few years, and it's like, wow. And it's pure. You I mean you can almost picture him sitting in his, his apartment with a big deck in his strat and just noodling around. And, oh man, I got to press record on this because, I mean, that's it's quintessential Hendrix that tune. Yeah, think about the simple chords that it is. Yeah, you know, uh, E C D G A. F, you know, yeah, probably. Yeah, yeah. That, and how does he play that? Yeah, you know, you know, only Hendrix. That's one of those, yeah. It's like in high school when I heard, that, I heard the first Hendrix album, it's like, I don't even know what that is. It makes me think of, of my first experience, experience, excuse the pun. Uh -huh. uh, Dad and I were driving to, I think it was the post office in Anchorage. Hendrix, When Cries Mary came on. And 
we're in the parking lot and he's getting ready to go <laughs> inside. I remember it was in the middle of winter. And I'm like, wow, who's that? You know, that's, I asked dad, I said, who's that? Oh, that's, that's Jimi Hendrix. I was like, okay, now I got to log in this, you know, and of course my, I wasn't really paying attention to the song anymore. It was my brain was on fire with the possibilities of, whoa, is this where you, you know, because for, for me at that age, it was like, whatever came on the radio, but Hendrix, it was like, it, it ripped open a whole new, whole new tear in my psyche that you could just go through and explore. I mean, even the lyrics and Little Wing too. I mean, it is, it's, it's poetry. I mean, it's so well-written. And a lot of musicians nowadays can't even say that. No one wrote that for Hendrix. He wrote that himself. So how is a prolific poet, but uh, married together, just Little Wing, Wind Cries Mary, phenomenal. Yeah, yeah no kidding. It reminds me like when uh, your dad and I, my brother Mike and, uh, and our dad would go hunting. Um, we'd have the radio on AM, FM radio, coming home, we're tired, you know, all that. Maybe it was only one time, but it seems like it's one of those moments that kind of paints a whole uh, sequence. Sure. Uh, one of Dylan's early songs uh, on his first album, uh, whatever it was, or maybe this wasn't even on one of his albums. Um, my attention was just pasted to the radio, just listening to the words. You know, when you stand in the vacuum of your eyes and says, hey, do you want to make a deal? It's like... God, I was like 13 years old or something. And he's only like nine years older than me. So he's like 20. I love those lyrics. Um, and then, of course, so that ties into Hendrix as well, because I didn't, I, the only like a Rolling Stone I knew was Jimmy at the Monterey Pop Festival. Right. Yeah. And then to yeah. know Dylan was a huge influence on Jimmy and like all on the Watchtower. And, you know, yeah. it's, holy crap. Suddenly I'm going backwards and finding Dylan recordings, you know. And that, that's cool that Hendrix could carry the torch like that and say, look, you guys, if you love me doing this, go back and grab Dylan. Again. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. And Dylan said after he heard Hendrix's version, he's never played, he always plays it that <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so uh, three guitar tunes. Another one is, um, I, I hope you know this one, Placo de Lucia, Entre de Aguas. Uh. Uh, it's, uh, it's, I never get tired of it. I only hear it every few years, but it's like, oh man, like it's the one that, where I stop what I'm doing and turn when I'm doing that. And another one, I'm sure you've never heard of this one. Uh, Cuarto uh, Oriente is the artist. Uh, he's uh, Cuban at the Cuarto Oriente. Mueva um, like Oh, here I can't read my own handwriting, let alone Spanish. Mueva la cintura mulata, Cuarteto Oriente. Mueva la cintura mulata. It's beautiful. That's another one that just stops me in my tracks. And then when I'm thinking about, you know, what you said about the desert island, it's like, yeah, okay, you've got the Zeppelin and you've got the, you know, all the, the, all the all the bands that you would you know definitely put on that list, they're so I think they're so ingrained in my psyche, classic rock in general, that I could probably do uh, "Don't Stop Believing" by Journey and walk around the island and and sing it note for note 
from beginning to end. It's so so. Why would you want it on that mixtape when it's already locked into your your genetic, you know, musical material? Yeah, yeah. And it's already running in your mixtape in your brain. You don't need it. <laughs> you know, and that's one of the things about music too, and uh, and why stations like uh, the play, that only play old big rock, big big rock and roll hits. You know, like. Uh, big rock stations, whatever they are. I, and, and, you know, it doesn't take long to get sick of them. But truth of the matter is, I'm emotionally attached to my youth, or that's where I come from. Yeah. And all that stuff, all that early years stuff, I mean, stuff like from the farm when I was less than five, and, and the, high, the music I listened to in high school and the, and the few years after that, that's like part of the building blocks of who I am. I think you just referenced that. And of course, I'm emotionally attached to it, so I think it's great music. Uh, I can still hear. Um, I mean, I, I still look for, or I'm still exposed to or love world music from all around the world. Um, not all of it, but a lot of it. I mean, it's you know the songs that reach me that aren't connected to my youth or my development. Uh, I hear something in them. And there's, so of course, I'm going to be more attached to the old, you know, they're going to catch my, you know, there's going to be a memory attached to it. There's going to be a, a scene or a period of my life. And kids these days that are listening to whatever's out there today, that kind of goes past me. A lot of it does. Yeah. Uh, when they're my age, <laughs> they're going to go back to, you know, 2010, 2015, right. 20, you know, whatever. Right. You know, it's interesting, Stephen, I'm thinking about this. Is guitar for us as noodlers, like you called it at the beginning, uh, players, in any instrument, is that us attempting to connect and hold on to a continuing thread, uh, maybe even thanking, thanking the musical gods for what they've given us over the decades? And, and becoming an obvious fiber of our being. I think connecting with guitar, for me personally, is kind of a thank you, uh, a bowing at the altar of, I, because even though we're playing on deaf ears, except our own, right? If you're not recording your own music, you're still giving it to the universe up there. And the energy that is music that we've tapped into so many times. And, and it might be a kind of a, a connection, uh, you know, uh, I mean, you know, when you hear about Bach and writing, you know, his uh, concertos, there's a certain amount of connection with God. You know, they wrote it to connect with the spirit, the divine. And to me, I think that might be what guitar is. It's our, it's our holy grail, our, our, you know, Ark of the Cup, whatever you want to call it. It's our, our musical divining staff that allows us to reach out into that energy. Yeah, six strings that are reverberating and part of our, part of the vibration of our development. Absolutely. And, you know, it's like, it'd be like immigrating to another country and then hearing, uh, hearing music from your tribe or village or community that you left uh, so long ago. And, you know, human history, I think I don't think there's been a moment in human history that music hasn't been part of right. the community. 
was. Yeah. And that, that connects the tribe, that connects the whatever. Well, Steve, I honestly am so deeply thankful for everything you've given me musically and starting, you know, giving me that divining rod, that that uh, that that tool that I could use to tap into the the energy that I was just exploring as a kid. And suddenly it was like, oh, I can make this happen, you know, and uh, I do appreciate that. And I really appreciate you joining me in this conversation. Thank you very I'm much. Happy to, happy to, Patrick. Thanks. And ha um, who knew when I gave you that guitar that I was going to, that it was that important to you? You know, I might have been, I might have been trying to get rid of some of the stuff I had because I was probably moving to Arizona. It's like, yeah, I don't need this. Take it. Thank you. <laughs> and, and I, I remember a lot of times just holding on to it and just like holding it, you know, and not even playing it, just looking at the body and trying to figure out the mechanics of building one of these. And, you know, I, it, it was definitely a, an eye opener for me, a, a soul opener. And I, and I have to say that you're probably, because of that, you're going to be one of the most, if not the most, important guest I'll ever have. Well, thank you. I will say, you know, about about that connection with music and holding the guitar and, and that. I mean, it's part of our cultural thing growing up with a guitar-driven culture. Even though I'm not a professional musician and I don't know everything about how to create music and all that, there's still nothing that, uh, there, there's nothing like picking up a guitar feeling the strings, the fretboard. I mean, the Fender guitar that I have when I picked it up and I felt it, that I could just fit like a well-made shoe or something. It's like, wow, I got to have this. It's kind of expensive back in 1990. But just the feel of steel on fretboard and on, on the frets. And, uh, you know, sometimes like with my arthritis, I can't play very long, but I have to do it, just pick it up and just do a lick or do a scale or strum a couple of chords just for old time's sake and it just feels so good. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You're on stage though, I'm terrible. <laughs> terrible in public. <laughs> <laughs> well, Steve, again, thank you, man. I really greatly appreciate it. And uh, we'll talk again soon. Patrick, thanks so much uh, yeah. for your uh, attention and for inviting me, and, uh, and it's always great talking with you.